This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash iFreaks. Welcome to episode 151 of iFreaks. Uh, this week we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Alanda Brunjan, currently in La Paz, Bolivia. And today's guest we have is J.P. Samard to talk to us about cross-platform Swift development. Welcome, J.P. Oh, hi. Calling in from San Francisco. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure. I am a, a Cocoa engineer at Realm, so it's a company that makes a, a mobile database. We've been around for about two years, um, so I work on the Objective-C and Swift side of things. Uh, of course, the company's a lot bigger than that. We have people working on kind of a brand-new database engine, um, people working on the Android side, recently React Native. And so, obviously, kind of cross-platform database is a big part of what we do. And so, with uh, my interest in Swift, I've tried to marry both worlds and really try to dig into uh, a, a lot of that lately with Swift open sourcing just about four months ago. So, it's exciting times. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how you've gotten started with uh, cross-platform development with Swift, with these recent changes in the open sourcing of Swift. Well, it's funny uh, you say that. When people think cross-platform Swift, they kind of hear, um, you know, Linux and then Apple platforms as two separate and unique things. And really, we've been doing cross-platform Swift development for, well, ever since Swift was announced, really, across all the platforms that Apple software runs on. And so this kind of story kind of started as with everyone else who's been writing Swift in, uh, what was it, 2014 when it was announced. So since then, you know, it started off with uh, right away, I think it was, uh, what was it, three platforms, right? You had OS X, iOS, and watchOS even at that point, which I think, if memory serves, was announced around that time or, or the first SDK started coming out around that time. So uh, really, I mean, the whole community has been doing cross-platform Swift development. And, and there are subtle differences, you know, across the platforms. There's platform-specific architecture optimizations and weird bugs because of those optimizations as well. So it's, uh, it's something that, as a community, I mean, Swift was kind of born into right away. So with the latest developments with Realm moving into Linux, I mean, it sounds like there's some other unique challenges that even outside of developing for macOS and watchOS and iOS that uh, you've encountered. Well, definitely. So, I mean, continuing through the cross-platform, you know, the big milestone there was really when Swift was open source. And, you know, Apple had been promising that Swift would be ported to Linux, but I don't think it was ever clear exactly how far along that effort was. Judging by you know everything that was announced and what's been shown from Swift in the last few months, it's clear that it's always been fairly far along. And so now with Swift being available not just on Apple platforms, but on other platforms, I mean, people have started efforts to port it to the Raspberry Pi, to Debian Linux, to Ubuntu, to Android, and a number of other well variations of Linux. It's really, really impressive to see that going in that direction. And, you know, you mentioned Realm and, and how there's an opportunity here. There definitely is. 
in terms of uh, just kind of porting what we have, which is really kind of the first database that was designed with Swift in mind over to all the other platforms that Swift supports. So it's exciting times. So we're talking in April 2016. What is the state of the of the different platforms and Swift support that you're talking about? Right. Well, the difference is where it really hurts, right? Um, so I'd say that a very large portion of Swift works kind of right out of the box across Apple platforms and non-Apple platforms. And uh, generally, I think in this conversation, we'll consider cross-platform Swift as Apple versus non-Apple platforms. So when you're on Apple platforms, you have a number of things that are going for you that you sometimes just take for granted. For example, even in a pure Swift code base, which is essentially impossible to have on iOS because no matter what, you're going to have to link against UIKit and Foundation and, and stuff like that. But even that aside, uh, considering the Objective-C runtime is there, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting for a lot of under-the-hood language implementations. So even if you're writing an iOS app, you just have .swift files in there, you're still going to be leveraging some of the Objective-C runtime, like dynamic method dispatch or reflection capabilities. I mean, there's a reason that you know, core data works in Swift, even though it's kind of incompatible with the language at a very core level. That doesn't really matter. The interop gets you really, really far. And so when you start to port that code over to other non-Apple platforms, you really start to see how much Swift relies on Objective-C in Apple platforms, and, and that's where it really starts to hurt. So just when you try to do casting, you know, so if you're casting from a protocol to a concrete foundation type, for example, well, because Obshi Bridgeable isn't implemented on Linux, or it recently was, I think, in the open source version, well, that's just going to fail. And so even in pure Swift, when you, you don't even know that you're using Objective-C or other Appleisms uh, under the hood, when you start to try to port that code, that's when you really start to see uh, the differences across platforms and where the current state of things are. Between the time that Apple announced Swift would be open source and when they actually released it as open source, it seems like most people assumed that that release would include Swift and the Swift standard library, but Foundation would not be part of that. And there were people who were writing, you know, sort of like open source or cross-platform ready Swift libraries before Swift was cross-platform. And what they meant is we're just using the Swift standard library. I think people were pleasantly surprised that Foundation is actually part of the Swift open source release. And of course, they're rewriting Foundation in Swift instead of Objective-C, which it's been in for, well, really for 20 plus years or something. But I, I wonder though, so what, what you've just said is, is sort of about some of the Objective-C bridging features, but it seems like the story is actually pretty good in, in, in the sense that we do have real Foundation. Where is that at? I know it was sort of in progress when they first open sourced everything. Yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. The current state of cross-platform Swift is really an amazing achievement. I guess as an engineer, as, as software developers, we usually just focus on, okay, well, what's next? What's still broken? What's the next bug or feature that we have to work on? And so that's why I tend to gravitate towards just highlighting those differences. But really, overall, Apple has done an amazing job at ensuring that Swift is cross-platform and, and has great performance on all platforms and all things like that. But kind of going back to your question on where do we stand with uh, Foundation, the Swift version of Foundation. Yeah, so I was blown away when it was announced that Foundation would also essentially be part of the open source Swift release. What was really interesting was the mechanics that Apple went by actually doing that, where, you know, prior to Swift being open source, if you would have asked me, are they going to open source uh, Foundation? I would have said no, for sure. Mostly because of what you just said. You know, it's been around for 20 plus years. 
And Apple hasn't open sourced it yet, the Objective-C version, what's called the Darwin version of Foundation. And so uh, I thought it was highly unlikely that they would do anything like that. And they ended up kind of taking an approach that I hadn't considered at all, which is writing what I would consider to be uh, 40 to 50 percent of Foundation in Swift using CF Lite, the core foundation. Actually, not CF Lite, but core foundation, rather. So that's in C. And then having Swift wrappers. And I'd say they probably went about 40 to 50% of the way there towards what Darwin Foundation actually has. And then they said, we'll crowdsource the rest, essentially, where there are a handful of people at Apple who kind of shepherd the effort of continuing work on Swift Foundation, which is the open source version. Philip Hausler comes to mind. I think there's a handful of other people. But really, there's just so much interest from the community to contribute back to Swift Foundation that there are pull requests coming in nonstop. You know, on any given day, there might be, you know, about half a dozen to a dozen pull requests, sometimes small, sometimes fairly comprehensive, that just continue to narrow the gap between Swift Foundation and, and, and Darwin Foundation. And so I really feel like Apple kind of looked at this and said, well, with relatively minor effort, so just with a handful of people on our side, plus the community, we could probably rebuild most of Foundation over the course of several months, which is kind of our timeline for Swift 3 anyway. And so uh, right now, the, the goal for, for Swift Foundation is to be more or less at parity with Darwin Foundation by the time that Swift 3 is released, which at this point is looking like fall 2016. So if you want to get started, you know, writing a a Swift app on Linux, how do you go about that? I think by far and away, when you're developing any sort of software, the language tends to be only part of the equation. You know, the language of standard library and the other non-standard standard libraries, I guess, which you would count foundation in there, still account for just a fraction of the development experience. Another big part of the development experience is the IDE and the the tool chain and uh, the developer tools that you use. So Xcode is still fully closed source and um, Apple platform only, Mac only, really. And so really that provides kind of the best experience when you're developing Swift, you know, bar none. I mean, there are other tools out there that help you. uh, For example, AppCode from the folks at JetBrain, which is an IDE, that uh, more or less replaces Xcode. Now, the, the folks at uh, JetBrains also made a plugin for their C Lion IDE, which is a C languages uh, IDE that supports C and C++, but it shares a lot of the same code base as AppCode with a fairly big difference. C Lion is cross-platform, so it'll work on Linux and I think Windows. But essentially, the the JetBrains people did a Swift plugin for the C-Line IDE, which means that now you can write Swift uh, on Linux using their IDE, which actually gets you a pretty nice experience. In my opinion, you know, not to uh, diminish the work that the folks at JetBrains have done, which is really impressive, but uh, Xcode is still far and away the best way to be developing Swift. And so if you're going to be writing a cross-platform piece of code in Swift, I'd really suggest starting with Xcode because, you know, it has LLDB integration. It has, well, really, it's it's been around the longest as a Swift IDE. So it really gets you a nice experience. And then from there, you can kind of um, try to run that in a Linux environment. And there's a handful of ways that you can do that. You can spin up a virtual machine, you know, using Docker or just uh, a plain vanilla virtual machine or run that maybe on uh, 
an Amazon server or some other kind of cloud platform, and then slowly kind of turn on piece by piece of this app that you originally wrote for Apple platforms, and slowly turn on piece by piece for the Linux counterpart. So that's just kind of one of the approaches that you could take to port an app. So most of our audience are app developers. They may not know what Docker is. Can you explain that real quick? Right. So Docker is a very popular tool recently, I guess. Uh, it's writing on the trend of uh, what's called containerization, which is essentially isolating a small Linux kernel away from the rest of the underlying host system in a way that you can essentially run a mini virtual machine. And what that allows you to do is kind of have a very lightweight subset of a virtual machine that you can actually run, you know, say a lot more instances on one given computer or laptop. And it gives you full isolation from the underlying host. So if, say, I'm spinning up a Docker virtual machine on my OSN machine, it means that it's running a Linux kernel in a container so that I can actually communicate with this extra machine that's actually living on my laptop or on my computer without necessarily having to go over the network to a dedicated uh, Linux box, say. So it's uh, just a fairly convenient way that even without leaving the comfort of your OS X development machine, you can actually be trying out, say, your Linux Swift script or your Linux Swift app in the Linux environment in the comfort of your own OS. One of the benefits of using this is that you could have a configured system running on your development machine, and you can work with it, you can share it with other people. So if you have something that requires some configuration, you can have multiple copies and just use that, and it's just running on your box and works like that. Yeah, that's right. So, for example, if your Swift app needed to depend on some you know, Linux package, say you wanted to have OpenSSL in there, well, you could use something called a Docker file to actually put that as a configuration step or a configuration file, I guess, with the rest of your project. And then anyone else who's pulling in your project would just be able to spin up a Docker VM and already have all the prerequisites that the system needs for your app to run. So it's it's quite convenient. Okay, so are all the major brand of Linuxes available in Docker? You can just get a template like for Ubuntu or, or whatever? Yes, uh, there's definitely lots of flavors, lots of uh, what's called images that you can pull down from uh, Docker hubs or essentially a centralized image container for Docker. Now, not all of the Linux flavors necessarily support Swift to the same extent at this point, but uh, it's pretty far along. Okay, so I'm running a virtual machine on my box and I'm opening Xcode, which is pointing at my own, you know, my Mac file system. How do they work together? How does this happen? Well, now we're getting into kind of the specifics of um, a fairly opinionated uh, way that you could do cross-platform Swift development. But it's what I've been toying with, and it's working fairly well for me. So you spin up a, a Docker VM, and what you can do when when spinning up this uh, this container is uh, to actually point to a shared path on the host machine, so on your Mac, that will also be mounted as a file system mount point in the Linux container so that the same set of files are available uh, to both the Linux environment and your Mac. And what this allows you to do is, say, spin up Xcode and continue pointing to your Swift project as you always have, but also kind of run those same set of files or run the Swift compiler on those same set of files from the Linux environment. So you can open up Xcode, make a few edits, you know, use autocomplete, use LLDB to debug something, 
and uh, hit save, and then immediately that's available to the Docker container. So at that point, all you're ever doing from the Docker container really is running Swift C or the Swift compiler or the, the Swift, just the Swift command that'll run a set of files that are just in time interpreted. So it really leads to a very nice development environment where really you're basically just testing in Linux. You're not really developing in Linux. And that can really get you most of the way to uh, building something with Swift on Linux. Okay, so you're talking about a system where you're doing your coding in Xcode, and it's pointing to your local file system, and your container has a copy of it. It's the bound point, so it's staring at the same files. Once you save it, then it's available in the VM. At that point, you switch over to the VM, and you do the compiler via command line. Now, if you're used to an IDE, which most of us are, most of us have our heads on Xcode, you might think that's a little bit weird, but it's actually a pretty good workflow if I'm doing Ruby development you know, there's really no IDE that does compiling. That doesn't really make sense. So you write the code and you switch over to the command line and run a test. So it's pretty solid workflow. So don't be scared of it. Yeah, but it does get you most of the way there. There are times, though, when you might need to actually do some debugging in the Linux environment, right? And thankfully, when Apple open sourced Swift, they also open sourced their LLVM and Clang and LDB forks from the mainstream projects into their own Swift-specific versions, which are pretty close to the upstream versions, but have some slight differences. So for example, if you wanted to attach LDB to an application running in Linux, it might allow you to debug it in a way that would otherwise be really impractical if you were otherwise just using Xcode. Because at that point, LDB is very platform specific. It won't really be able, the, the version that you're running in Xcode or, or the version that Apple ships with Xcode won't really be able to attach to a separate process running in a separate container. Or if it can, uh, it would really impress me. <laughs> so at that point, you need to run the Linux version of LDB. It's at that point that when you really start to uh, do more in-depth Linux Swift development, you might actually be better off actually running in a more complete Linux environment so something like Ubuntu with the Ubuntu GUI and all that. And it's at that point that you can start using, uh, I mentioned C-Line earlier as an IDE. There's also a handful of Sublime Text or Atom plugins that, you know, those text editors do work on Linux, uh, on Ubuntu. That uh, So there are a handful of plugins for those text editors that will allow you to have kind of interactive LDB uh, integration as well. So you can kind of bring your Linux Swift development to the next level if you fully immerse yourself into a Linux environment too. I want to talk a little about sort of the Swift build system because you've already been touching on a lot of this, but if you're already doing Swift development on Apple platforms, of course you use Xcode and you write your Swift and you hit the run button and, you know, that's that. But there are other considerations that go into writing something that's going to build and run on other non-Apple platforms where Xcode's not available. And the Swift compiler, of course, will compile stuff, but I think the Swift package manager is a big deal. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the Swift package manager is more than just a kind of dependency resolution tool. It is partly that. And by dependency resolution tool, I mean a tool that will allow you to pull packages from different sources. So say that you're using anti-typicals result type that you want to pull in just so that you have a result type in, in your Swift code. Well, you can specify that in something that's called a package.swift file. It's a package manifest that the Swift package manager will then use to go and resolve 
all those dependencies and build the packages that you want to build internally. So say that you want to build in just an executable. You can use a Swift package manager, which will kind of combine the dependency resolution aspect, pulling down packages as well. So downloading, say, this result package and doing all the work of linking it and building it against your code base. And using this kind of package manifest, you can specify uh, where your unit tests are, what frameworks to use for, well, I call them frameworks, but really the Swift package manager calls them packages and libraries. You can kind of specify which parts of your code base need what. You can even use the Swift package manager to not only build an executable, but to build other packages so that other users of the Swift package manager can then pull in your code and uh, and use in their code base. So the Swift package manager, taking a step back, is part dependency resolution, part package management, part build tool, uh, which essentially uses uh, a, a new tool that was also released as part of the open source Swift release called LL Build, which is not strictly Swift specific. It's kind of a build tool like Buck or Ninja that uh, is essentially just an interface to LLVM. And so it's kind of a replacement for, like I said, Ninja or Buck or Xcode builds, really, that uh, can build not only Swift, but also C-type languages or anything else that LLVM supports. I know I just explained, or I just mentioned a handful of a handful of tools here. So if you want me to clarify any of these or to go more in depth, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, so um, I, go for it. Yeah, I, I know what Ninja is, but probably a lot of our listeners don't, and I don't think I've ever heard of Buck. Right. Buck is a build tool that's built by Facebook, fairly popular for building Android apps, but you can also build applications for a lot of other platforms with this. You can use this as a C languages build tool, so C, C++. There's integration for, of course, Java, but even Objective-C, Go, D, Python, Lua. It's very similar to Ninja. I'd say Ninja is probably more of a generic solution to building build tools. You know, it's generally used in conjunction with other build tools, say like CMake, uh, whereas Buck tends to be kind of more complete. And in that sense, LL Build is probably a closer equivalent, if you will, to Buck. You can check out the the more information on Buck at uh, the buckbuild.com website. Again, this is a open source tool built by Facebook. Uh, I've heard great things about it. Well, with the explanation of Buck, you mentioned Android, which is something I've been wanting to ask you since we started talking. Just as as we record today, like today or yesterday, um, a pull request adding Android target support for Swift was for the open source Swift was um, merged in, which is kind of cool news. But I I don't really know what it means, and I wonder. One of the first thoughts I had is that you know I, I don't think you can use it to build an Android app right now, but like a full on Android app. But you could use it to build an NDK app, right, where you're either doing your own UI like a game or something. Or another thing I thought it could be used for is is a problem that you actually have at Realm where you have the core of Realm is written in C++, so it's cross-platform. And C++ has been a good way to do cross-platform code. But now that Swift's on Android, does that mean anything for Realm? Does that sort of introduce a new solution to the problem you've used C++ for in the past? Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there, uh, which is kind of what I've heard a number of people at Apple uh, who work on Swift, like Chris Latner and Joe Groff, uh, have mentioned that they really see Swift as a replacement for everything from kind of systems-level programming to application-level programming. And if you look at um, some of the WWDC sessions from 2015, uh, I forget the name. There's one that's about uh, 
high performance Swift and how you can kind of rewrite parts of your app that you know were previously kind of slow due to Objective C method dispatch or obviously message send. And I mean, there's really not that much code that's actually limited by uh, the Objective C runtime, but there is some. And so during that WWDC session, they were recommending, well, this code that I previously had in C++ that uh, needed to do manual memory management. Uh, well, now I can actually port this to Swift and get similar kind of performance improvements. Swift is is really still a work in progress. So I'm not sure if today it really is uh, kind of an accurate statement to say that uh, Swift is as highly performant as C++ in most scenarios, but I certainly think that it has the potential to get there and that it's probably there for some circumstances today. And so I really do see uh, kind of Swift Probably not today, but as it kind of stabilizes across platforms and, you know, Swift, probably by the time that Swift 3 comes out and Swift is uh, more portable than it is today, that it might be a very good tool for people who are writing cross-platform code. And so Realm is a good example of that. Right now, our database engine is all written in C++, and C++ is really a great systems programming language at this point. There's nothing that really comes close. But you know the, the way Realm is kind of architected, uh, we have the core database engine written in C++, that's cross-platform. And then we have bindings in Objective-C, Swift, Java, and JavaScript that uh, then bridge kind of the, the high-level language constructs like the Swift standard library or the Objective-C runtime, and the uh, foundation types to the types that the core library actually support and work with. And so most of the functionality here is written in C++, and that allows us to share the same code base on multiple platforms. And I really do see uh, Swift kind of playing a major role like that moving forward. Again, probably after Swift 3, after the current Swift goal of portability, where Swift can really be used as kind of a cross-platform core to, say, your iOS and Android application, where you can have some business logic in there. You might even have some model code, uh, some database code that you can share across your app, and then you can still use kind of the platform-specific UI SDKs or languages to then interact with that through, say, on, in Java, through the JNI as an NDK, or, of course, for an iOS app as you would today. And, and you could probably even reuse that business logic kind of cross-platform Swift core of your app and have some of that on the server too so that you have consistent business logic that you don't have to rewrite in multiple languages and then have subtle bugs due to differences in behavior. Uh, so I really do see that as, uh, as a huge win for Swift moving forward. And the fact that the Android pull request was just merged is a huge step in that direction. Yeah, it's impressive that it was merged that quickly. Usually it takes longer than that for me to get my two-liners through. So good job, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> there have been lots of people that were working hard on this. Uh, Brian Jeziak at Facebook and a lot of people at Apple who uh, were obviously really pushing this. And what's really great to see from Apple, you know, this new Apple, is how um, kind of open, honest, and just well-intentioned everyone on the Swift team at Apple seems to be, where they really want this language to succeed to the point where they're definitely going to encourage Swift running on different platforms and support it from the highest levels. You know, Craig Federighi has mentioned this, that Swift on multiple platforms is, is a big part of the strategy. It's really nice to see because really, as a Swift user, there's nothing that could beat that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a solid language um, for systems things, but I think also for 
you know, web stuff, maybe not as much as an interpreted language like a Ruby or Python, but there's a lot of good things in there where you can be, you can develop a lot of different apps. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes down the pipe. So we talked about the, the Swift package manager. And if, if you want to like get hacking on something and create a simple app, either runs on the desktop or like a server app, and you want to do something like, you know, network requests, which I assume uh, NS URL sessions done by foundation, is that those type of things available? Yeah, Foundation definitely is available that you can pull that down using the Swift Package Manager. There was a time, I believe, when Swift Foundation was actually included in the Swift Snapshot releases, which are essentially something like biweekly builds of the entire Swift built tools that you can then just kind of easily pull in and install you know, as, as a prepackaged thing. Lately, I think they've removed Foundation from those builds, from those releases, but you can still pull it in using Swift Package Manager and uh, then use everything that's available in Foundation to you as if you were writing kind of a OS X app. Okay, do you have to specify which parts you're using or how does, um, how does that work? Of, of Foundation? Well, you can specify what you're using in your uh, what's called the package manifest, which I mentioned earlier, this package.swift file that's at the root of your project. So at that point, you would specify that you want to pull in Swift Foundation. And then in your Swift code, you would import it like you would in Xcode, where you'd say import foundation. And then if you wanted to only import a subset of foundation, you could further specialize that import. So say import foundation dot uh, whatever submodule uh, that you want to pull in, which uh, I'm not sure exactly which one that would be for, say, NSURL session. Okay, well, that makes sense. So you can pull down all the foundation at once, which I imagine would be pretty large. We're not typically used to dealing with that if we're dealing with Xcode because it's all there. But it is possible to, to figure out which sub package within foundation that you can use and and pull that one instead keep things a little bit leaner it wouldn't really make much of a difference because ultimately the linker will do most of that work so if you're not using parts of uh, foundation even if you import just say import foundation it'll just strip away the parts that uh, you're not using so you don't have to worry about that all that much as far as the swift package manager is concerned you are downloading the whole thing the whole foundation package and that's something that they don't really have support for only pulling in partial packages. If there is one kind of Git repository for a package, it'll pull the whole Git repository, even if you have documentation and tests in there. So if you do want to make, say, your package leaner, you'd probably have to split it up across multiple packages. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, JP, is there anything else you want to talk about with um, cross-platform Swift before we move on to fix? Well, you mentioned cross-platform Swift and Realm before, so I could go into uh, a little bit of our, our plans there and uh, what we expect to do. I would, that's of I, interest. I would love to hear that. Yeah, that would be great. For Swift and Realm, obviously we're huge fans of the language, and we've staked a lot of our business and our product plans on Swift for so many reasons, mostly because we do see great potential in the language. I think our Swift binding is, is uh, really close and dear to my heart because obviously that's something that uh, that I work on on a regular basis. Um, and so immediately when Swift was available as open source, we started looking into exactly what it would take for us to be able to build Realm Swift on Linux. And uh, there's actually a, quite a lot of work ahead of us here, both on our side at Realm and on Apple's side for Swift. 
one of the stated goals of Swift for Swift 3 is portability. And that includes some of the language features that currently rely on the Objective-C runtime. Now, Realm relies a lot on the Objective-C runtime for convenience reasons, for API reasons, for performance reasons. We'll use things like Objective-C runtime uh, reflection to know exactly all of your Realm models how they're laid out, what properties they have, and how to save those in a Realm file. We use Objective-C runtime reflection for that, which is obviously not available in Swift. So we essentially need some work from Apple to kind of improve the reflection capabilities from Swift so that we can do this even in the absence of the Objective-C runtime. Another thing that we make heavy use of is method replacement. So with Objective-C, you can actually replace methods at runtime. And so we make heavy use of this to replace all of your property setters and getters to replace them with optimized versions that uh, won't actually copy data in and out of the realm file into memory. It'll just kind of point directly to the memory mapped location of that data. And so without that, there would be a huge performance loss because you would essentially do what you need to do with SQLite, which is to copy everything out of the database into a serialized form, into memory, and then do the opposite every time that you want to write to the database. So those are performance gains that we uh, would really not want to lose. And so at this point, Swift being a very statically typed language, no dynamic dispatch unless you explicitly opt into it, doesn't really allow for this. And even if you do opt into this, uh, it relies on the Objective-C runtime to do the heavy lifting, which is why if you try to write some Swift code on Linux that uses the dynamic keyword, it won't compile because it requires the Objective-C runtime. And so thankfully, there's been a lot of really interesting work that was done mostly by Joe Groff in the last month or so on property behaviors. Now, property behaviors, you can take a look online. Uh, It was actually proposed as an official Swift evolution proposal. It went through the process. And at this point, a lot of the implementation is actually starting to uh, to be added. So property behaviors is very similar to Java. Uh, what, what is it? There, there's there's another language. I forget the I forget which language it is, but some other language uh, out there has something similar where it ascribes behaviors to specific properties. And one example that was given as part of the proposal was to re-implement the lazy keyword as a property behavior. So what this allows library authors or even application developers to do is to define custom code that will be run every time that a property is either set or read. And what this essentially would allow Realm to do is to replace these currently runtime swizzled method replacements with statically defined property behaviors that would probably be even more performance so that we could, instead of backing a property by an instance variable, we could just point the setters and getters to the underlying realm data, which would be just as efficient as the Objective-C side of things, maybe even faster because you'd actually skip the dynamic method dispatch. And not only that, but it would even feel better as uh, as a Swift interface because you wouldn't have to use the dynamic keyword and um, it would actually be using part of the language as it's designed. So we're extremely excited with the direction that Swift is going and what we'll be able to uh, kind of pull in to even improve the Realm Swift interface. I think another one of the things that these property behaviors would enable that I'm sort of excited about is a basically a replacement for KVO, which you get free if you 
have an Objective-C class with properties or a Swift Objective-C bridged Swift class, but there's not really a really great way to implement that in pure Swift. So that's another thing property behaviors, I think, should enable. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It should enable something like an observable property behavior where you can uh, not only specify you know, the property and its type, but also custom closures to run whenever something's changed, for example. It's a hugely exciting feature. I'm really looking forward to seeing that land. Yeah, that'd be cool to see in Swift. Great. Uh, so we're ready for picks? Ready when you are. Sure. Okay. Andrew, what do you have for picks this week? I'm just going to pick one thing this week. If you follow me on Twitter, you've already seen me talk about this because I got pretty excited about it the other day. But uh, a few weeks ago, well, no, I should say, I think it was more like a couple months ago, Cable Sasser, the, one of the founders of Panic, uh, who I follow on Twitter and, and really like, he posted about this Haunted Mansion subscription box. And if you know me in, in real life, you know I'm quite a Disneyland fan. Um, I live in Utah, but have had an annual pass for Disneyland uh, and go there multiple times per year, and, and I love it, and I'm really interested in sort of the, the engineering work that goes into it. Anyway, they've done this thing uh, where you sign up for a subscription, you get a box every month for three months that has stuff in it related to the Haunted Mansion, and it's all sort of a mystery, and they're telling a story, and uh, and there's an iPhone app that goes along with it. Um, I got my first one this week, and I was just really impressed with it. They did some stuff in the app in particular that as an electrical engineer and a longtime iOS developer, it still seemed like magic. It took me, you know, five or ten minutes to figure out how they were doing it. So for those five or ten minutes, I was just blown away um, and still really impressed that they were they were clever about it. And I'm not going to spoil anything. The sad news is they it was a limited thing and they sold out. But I'm hopeful that this is sort of a test run for stuff they're going to do in the future because it's just uh, something they're doing a really good job of. And it's been fun and cool so far. So that's my pick. All right, great. Uh, Jane? All right, I'm going to do, I got one pick. I'm going to do a book pick today. So I recently finished For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. Most of my life, if you would have asked me what does For Whom the Bell Tolls mean, you would have heard a Metallica song. Uh, but I read the book, and a lot of Ernest Hemingway's books are some American dude running around England, running around Europe. And this is no different. This is some American guy in the Spanish Civil War as a gorilla in the mountains uh, fighting the fascists. Uh, very interesting. Um, great book. And actually, the Metallica song, For Whom the Bell Tolls, was written about one of the chapters in the book. And just a really great read. Uh, that particular chapter, I'm reading it, and like, this is, I'm, I, I literally dropped the book and said, this is the most badass thing I've ever written. So, good war story. I like a lot of Hemingway's novels. Um, not for everyone, but I thought it was great. So, check out For Whom the Bell Tolls. Awesome. So I have one pick this week, um, and that is it's an article about the uh, case for pricing parity. I'm currently working on a desktop mobile app, and so this one was pretty timely. So it's just some thoughts on sort of how to make the pricing work when you're developing uh, for the different platforms and trying to maximize the value that you're able to gain. And it's a blog uh, uh, called Flixel. So that is my pick this week. JP, what do you have for us? There's um, a really, really cool data visualization and data analysis that a journalistic group called uh, the, the Polygraph did fairly recently in which they analyzed actually over 2,000 uh, movie screenplays and kind of broke them down by um, age and gender of the dialogue. And what's absolutely fascinating to this, to, to anyone who... Uh, 
have has kind of considered the um, Bechdel test or anything like that, or is interested in data visualization, or even just the actual analysis that was done here, it's absolutely amazing to see so much data that was analyzed in movies that we've all kind of seen and heard. And a lot of these are actually based off of Disney movies as well. So it's movies that we know, and it's incredible to see um, kind of how male-centric a lot of the movies are, and even female-centric plots that have a lot of predominantly male dialogue. You know, it's something that uh, is sometimes difficult to kind of figure out without actually looking at raw data, but you kind of get a sense of kind of uh, the structure of certain films or uh, certain film trends over the years. And to see it all kind of broken down like this is really, really impressive and insightful. So I'd really encourage anyone who's interested in this stuff to uh, take a look at uh, the the URL here is polygraph.cool slash films. Uh, it'll get you this really neat visualization. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this week's episode of iFreaks. And with that, we'll say so long. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.